Well, we uh, are joyed to uh, be able to continue on in our Second uh, Corinthians study. It's a wonderful section. It's truly a tremendous section as uh, we go through this third chapter of Second Corinthians. What we what we do is we when we enter into the very Word of God, it's like we're getting more of the presence of God. Of course, we're going to be dealing with glory today, superiority. And you think of those two terms and get a high thinking of God. Well, He is teaching us some more things about what His new covenant means. The glory of it is just truly awesome. And so when we're here today, this is how we go from one glory level of glory to another level of glory. This is we this is when we're in the presence of God is whenever we hear him speak and it's in his word. This is the truth that brings us into the throne room of God, not only in prayer, our prayers are based even upon the word. Here is his instruction right here of how things are. We want to know God, right? To know God is what eternal life is all about. And the only way we can know God, folks, is not through any kind of entertainment, any kind of outward things that are going on or how we feel, but I want to impress upon our hearts the truth, the objective truth is here. How that comes out of our lives, then, then it, it responds with the feeling. But don't go in thinking there has to be some feeling before we go here because this is the God of gods who speaks. This is how we know His holiness, His majesty, His greatness. It's through the Word of God. This is how He speaks. And this is how we enter into His very presence. And I'm telling you, it is superior over any other way. We're dealing with the New Testament. We're dealing with the New Covenant. So, what we're dealing with from verse 7 on through the rest of this chapter, I want you to focus your attention on what God is saying. I'm going to be lacking on how I'm going to bring it out to you. But I want to tell you, I am excited. I'm super excited this morning. I'm always excited when we get together and we talk about God's Word. I think you can tell that, I hope. But I want this to shine into your hearts too, where you can actually sense it yourself and be joyful too. And then have that sense of the motions come out from that as you spring from the very Word of God. It's superior to the Old Covenant. Paul labored so faithfully in Corinth and that city that where he planted such a, a, really a tremendous church. A lot of sin going on there. There were false teachers, false apostles coming in. And they wanted to affirm that the Old Covenant is equal with the New Covenant. It's not that they didn't believe in the New Covenant. They just said the Old Covenant is the same and it is equal to the New Covenant and is just as important. And they want to affirm that. These mosaic ceremonies, the rituals, you know, all of those things, the Sabbaths and, and all those special days that they had, they are to maintain the Old Covenant. And that is just as permanent as the New Covenant. It's as eternal, they're saying, as the New Covenant is. It's just as important as the New Covenant. 
It is equal to the new covenant. That is what is being brought forth. Now I want to tell you that actually in our man-centered gospel today, it really focuses upon that sense too. Because it's an outward thing rather than an inward thing that's coming through. So these false teachers believe in the gospel, they say, but they have to add to it the Mosaic law with such things as circumcision, the rituals, the certain days, the ceremonies. And they were adulterating the very gospel of grace that Paul had brought forth into Corinth. They were insulting Paul. They were insulting the very gospel message that he preached. They tried to downgrade him. So therefore, he defends the new covenant. He defends himself and the message that he has. So he says in verse 6, that God has made us adequate as servants. And that's where we left off last week, if you remember. We are adequate as servants of God to bring in the truth of the gospel. So he's contrasting to the false teachers who were the ministers of the old covenant. He's contrasting them and saying we are ministers of the new covenant, which is far more superior. And that's what he's getting into here. It's far more glorious. It's far better. It's new covenant truth against the old covenant ritualism, the legalism, all the outward things that they did. So it was, it was preached by a faithful preacher. So it's like Paul was asking the Corinthian church, okay, why would you turn away from me, my truth that I'm giving you, and believe a lie that the false teachers are bringing in, and you listen to these false teachers of the old covenant? Why would you do that when you have a far better new covenant? It's so superior to the old. Now, we're not saying that the Old Testament is bad. It is great. It's the Word of God. It's good. And we'll, we'll be proclaiming that. That it is a good thing. But there's something that Paul is expressing here that they needed to, to know. Paul defends the Gospel, insights into the New Covenant. He gets to the theology of the New Covenant in this portion today that we're going to be dealing with. It's a very brief section. But in a very brief section, a few short verses, and of course we're not going to go through the rest of the chapter, but from here all the way to the end of the chapter where it says, from glory to glory, he reaches the apex of that teaching of the New Testament. And so, that's really what he's uh, trying to impress upon them. And this is exactly what God has as the target as he works through Paul to bring forth his truth as we even read it here today. So, why don't we stand up Read this portion as Paul, in this brief section, makes it very clear and concise as he summarizes what the new covenant is. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory... 
much more that which remains is in glory. That's why we are excited. Let's go to this great God who gave this to us now. Father, thank You for this great portion of Your truth that You want us to understand even further. We've heard it. We've read about it so much. But yet, Lord, there's still things here that we need to know so that it will help us in our reassurance of what this grace covenant is and what we've entered into. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we're in verses 7 through 11, chapter 3 that we just read. First thing we start with is what is the new covenant? What is a covenant? A new covenant, covenant, it's simply a promise. Just put it that way. Simply as we can define it. There's, there are many more definitions we can put to it, but let's keep it as simple as we can. Promise. It's promise. The new covenant is the promise of salvation and everything that goes with that. Complete forgiveness of all your sins as they are cast as far as the east is from the west. God promised to take away your sins. That's the new promise. Isn't that great? Isn't that incredible? Matter of fact, casting the sins from the east to the west is right out of the Old Testament. You see, the New Covenant actually can be found in the Old Covenant. That's the whole point of what it was about. It was pointing to when it would actually come about when people believed in that cross or actually the sacrifice of the Messiah. They looked to that. We look back. And it has happened. In our time, we've been blessed and we can see it in a more full sense than, than they did. It's, it's found. The foundation is found in the Old Testament. This is what exactly that God has in His target point. And uh, that's what He's pointing to. Christ, the cross, salvation by grace. And so we're going to turn to a couple places right now in the Old Testament to see that God has promised this covenant long before the covenant was actually ratified by Jesus' blood. That's when it happened. It, it, it was ratified at the cross. But it always had been pointing towards that. And if you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, and this is a good one to put into your head and remember where this is at. Jeremiah, a prophet, there were bad things happening in, in the country at that time, the nation of Israel and around the world. A lot of bad things are going down. But he gives the good news. And so in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31, 31-31 of Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. He's going to turn their mourning into joy. That's what this is about. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be My people. 
They will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, here He says, I will remember the sins no more. He forgives and He forgets. And that's true forgiveness, isn't it? He doesn't hold it against them anymore. Matter of fact, He tells how true this is. How eternal it is. He says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it is ways roar, the Lord hosts His name. He does all that, doesn't He? The sun, the moon, the stars, He fixes them up there as sure as they're there. This covenant promise that I give you is true and will last forever. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I'll cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He says, if the foundations, if the heavens, if they are found out about then he says, then, then you, I will throw my promises away. That's not going to happen, is it? The stars, the sun, and the moon, if that happens. He says, you can't search that out. You cannot go that distance to find all that foundations. And so he continues on, the whole days are coming. What great news that is. Well, that's Jeremiah. That was during a time of bad news. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wrote another book called Lamentation. And yeah, we were talking about that. So, you know what? He tells the greatest news that they could possibly hear. How would you like to have your sins forgiven? That's what he's saying. God forgives. Ezekiel chapter 36, another prophet. Another one who brought terrible news to them. Used so many illustrations. And Ezekiel 36, verse 25, this is what he says. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Remember, that's one of the real reasons why they were being judged. Their idolatry. Worshipping God in the wrong way and worshipping other gods. Moreover, even more than that, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. You notice the I wills here. I'm not emphasizing them much. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Wow. That's what God is going to do. This is a unilateral covenant. Uno, one. One side of the covenant can do this. It's God only. The Mosaic covenant was dualistic God says, I do this if you do this. They proved they couldn't do it. And He says, 
here's what I'm going to do. Do you get it? You can't satisfy me by your righteous outward religiousness. Only I can do that. I'll give you, I'll sprinkle you, make you clean. I'm going to clean your filthiness. Man, how joyful that is to hear that, isn't it? A sinner just needs to hear that. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. You know what you have here, Jeremiah? Going back to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. For one thing, uh, uh, the very first one is that there is an internalization of God's law. I will put my law within them, and upon their heart I will write it. So it becomes inward. We know how they tried to do it outwardly. All at the same time, there was no change in their hearts. Now, there were many believers of the nation of Israel that time. These were true believers. They trusted God like Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. When you have belief, then now you have an inward work in you that now wants to please God. So he says, this is what's going to happen. I will do it. Number two. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This means an unbroken fellowship with God. Always having fellowship with God. They had broken fellowship. Number three, an unmediated knowledge of God. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord... For they shall all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. That means there's no need for a mediator a mediator coming in and teaching them. We have to have that. That's a gift today where you have teachers, people who proclaim the Word, and evangelists and such with certain gifts that are given to do that where people can learn the deeper truths of Christ. That's a must. But ultimately, it'll come to where we will be in the presence of God. We won't need any other people to get into the depths of God. And that's the beauty of from there on through eternity. We'll keep learning the depths of the eternity of God. The eternity of God. That characteristic, the nature of God. Always learning. We will know Him because we will be with Him. And then he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Those are all promises. We know that for sure it will be done. It's because he did it. Unconditional forgiveness of sins. If that doesn't relieve us, if we have guilt and shame that we carry around all the time, do we realize the forgiveness of sins? Not that we are to say, Hey, listen, then I can go and sin and do what I want. We're not saying that. If you were to look in Hebrews chapter 8, you would see that the Hebrew writer was inspired by God to talk about the New Covenant in Hebrews 8. It says the New Covenant is better. By the way, the theme, one of the themes of Hebrews is better. Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And you have it, the Hebrew writer constantly going through there and, and showing that Jesus Christ is better than the priest. 
you know, on and on. He's better than. He's saying the new covenant is better. When he gets to chapter 8, he talks about the new covenant. And he says in verse 6, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters... Wait, wait, I'm sorry guys. Wow. Okay. I knew something wasn't right. I love that passage. I'd love to go into that. Can't do it. It's 20 after. (laughs) That's right. That's the result. As As chapter 8 ends, then it goes into that. But we have to read the other part before that. Chapter 9. Let's go to chapter 8 now. Thank you for bearing with me. We start at verse 6. But now as he obtained a more excellent ministry, a more superior ministry, speaking of Christ, by as much as he, Christ, is also the mediator of a better covenant. He's the go-between. He goes between the people and God. Brings it to us. Serves it. It's a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. The old covenant was pointing to this. Here we go. For if that first covenant I had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. If I could have followed the law precisely in every element, there wouldn't be a need for the new covenant. I think he gets right at the heart of it. For finding fault with them, he says, and here we go. This might sound familiar. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That came out of the Old Testament. So is the Old Testament to be ignored? Absolutely not. Everything that he wrote there from 8 through 12 was all quoted right out of the Old Testament. We're thinking in Jeremiah, what we looked at. So, the Hebrew writer, I think, makes it very evident. You can't stand in between. You have to come all the way over to Christ. You want the old way? It's obsolete. You can't get there. You Only by the new covenant. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Him dying on the cross for our sins. Trusting in that. That's the new covenant. Now, what's the purpose of the covenant? I have on your outlines the new covenant. And really, what we're going to be talking about on this point is really the purpose of the old covenant. So, maybe I kind of uh, put that as misleading there. And as I looked at it, I go, wait, I really need to put the old covenant here. 
three things. One thing, it was a, it was a civil law. Two, it was ceremonial law. Three, it was moral. First one, civil. Uh, a civil component in this old covenant. It prescribed life in Israel is such a unique way. It's set apart from all the pagans and all the other nations. The people are sorted out. They're isolated from all the things that are going on around them. They're polytheistic people. They believe in many gods. Idolatry. So they were to be unique, to be different, to live a kosher lifestyle, if we can put it that way. Uh, Separated from the nations because they would be polluted and corrupted by them and it would destroy their testimony. Uh, that's what happened. Anyway, they adopted what the world did. but They were to be isolated. So, civil law. <laughs> Number two, there's the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law is the symbols. It's the sacrificial system that they had. Circumcision. The Sabbaths. The new moons. The festivals. The feast. All of those they related to the redemptive purpose that eventually would come. But it was just a ceremonial outward thing that was actually to produce an inward thing that happened in their hearts as they looked to the fulfillment of it. So it was to show or to reveal the redemptive plan of God. God's going to redeem. That was what it was about. So the nation is set aside, set apart, be unique of one people, Eventually, it's supposed to be Jew and Gentile that are in the church. But the ceremonial part of uh, this was to fade away. You know, like photos, and as they get older, they just kind of fade and fade. And you go back and look at some of the ones that were made in the 40s or 30s, you know, some of those old, old pictures. It's kind of fade, don't they? But And that's what happened. It just faded away. Man needs redemption, and that's what the symbols were for. It was pointing that you need redemption. The third one is moral. That's the permanent, eternal part of the law that was given. The moral law. It's always with us. God revealed His character in the moral law. He revealed His will for man in the Old Covenant. You say, why did He make the Old Covenant if He could just have the New Covenant right off the bat? Because He didn't work that way. (laughs) He wants to show that man cannot in and of himself ever please God. He cannot be holy like God is by Himself. And that's really what it was to do. Can the moral law save them? No. It is really good. It's holy. It's great. Something that God gave. But it cannot save. Just again, it's only pictures here is, is what was happening at that time. But what it was designed to do was to drive one to a place where people would see that they are sinful. God is holy. I am not. And you can say, well, that's simple. I understand that. Yeah, but that's the hardest thing for other people outside the church to grasp. They don't get that. And they, by the way, they don't want to see a holy God because they know if they see a holy God, He demands for them to be holy. They don't want that. So therefore, you have evolution. Because once you take God out, then you don't have anyone to answer to. See, the moral law is really designed to show our sin. It drives us to Him And we plead for mercy and forgiveness 
and grace. We plead for that. And that's the only place where people will be saved because the law has just condemned them. And that's what the remnant did of Israel. They were driven by the law to go to God. That's what a true Jew did. That's what a true believer did. He looked at the law. He looked at himself. I can't match up to it. I can't do it. Yet, most people today, if you ask them, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah. Well, how do you get to God? Well, I believe that if you be good, good enough, you can get there. And that's pretty well the answer. Being good. I can't keep the law. That's what God wants to hear from us. The rest of the Jews, though, who did not come running to God for pleading for mercy and grace, we tragically look at that. They say, well, you know, I can't keep it very well. I, I do pretty good. And you know, there's some that here, you know, I, I just can't. I don't know, you know. Yeah, I, I keep them. I keep them. Or they say, well, you know, I can't keep the law anyway, so what difference does it make? I'll use the ceremonial law as a means of salvation. If I can go to a church that has all these ceremonies, all these things around, and it makes me feel so religious, and the smells that are going up, and I just, it makes me feel good. And I've been religious today because I've gone to a right place where it must be the right place because there are people there, and what do you do there? What, what did the what did the man say that was up in front? Oh, I don't know. I was just glad to be there. It had a feeling of worship. It was so nice. Actually, they're saying, "I can't wait to get out of here." <laughs> the moral law. They they realize that okay, I'll use them ceremonial law as a means of salvation, and that's really what the Jews did when Christ came. You remember the. Uh, Oh, of course, the, the Pharisees. That's really what it's all about. It was about keeping the ceremonial law. They didn't. They didn't live the moral kind of life. They would make it look like they were holy. Oh, if you could only see the inside of them, like Jesus did. The whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, as he called the religious leaders of the day. So they took the letter of the law, the letter of the ceremonial law, all the outwardness of it, and then imposed it on top of the moral law. And it was really how one looked good. Because people could see that. You went to church, or you went to temple, you went to the tabernacle. You did all the things that we were supposed to do. But there was nothing here. That's what they did. And you know what? What the law did was kill them. The law's purpose is to kill us. That's radical. The letter of the law is actually deadly. By letter, we pointed that out before last week. It's the external. It's the ceremonial aspect of it. God gave the moral law to break the back, the will of man. To show... God's will for this sinner to show a man that he can't live up to everything that's there. 
All of that then should make him cast himself on the very mercy of God, on his grace. And that was symbolized in the sacrificial system. The moral law was intended to kill us. So now we turn to our second Corinthians. We're at verse seven. He said, Oh yeah, that's where we started. What happened? We've already been introduced to this. What's the first phrase? But at the ministry of death. Now if you print that to the average person, this is negative. It's the ministry of death. What? Is that Satan? He says, no, it's in the letters engraved on stones. You know, the, we're talking about Moses here. And what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the Old Testament. Our passage today depends upon the understanding of Exodus 34. So, why don't we just turn there? We go back to the law. The law is good and holy. It's righteous. It's perfect. We're not. Exodus 34, verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain. See, he makes it really clear there, Moses does in this writing of this, doesn't he? That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron, all the rulers of the congregation, returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So there he is. He's with the Lord 40 days, 40 nights. This is the second time that he's up there doing this. You remember the first time. He came down. They had their idol built and everything. And of course, what they do with the the stones, the tablets. Throws them. So upset at the people. You betcha. He'd been the holiness of God and he saw that. Are you kidding me? 40 days, 40 nights. He didn't eat bread. Didn't even drink any water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the uh, of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Came about when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. His face was shining. It shone because he had been in the presence of God. He was speaking with God. When God would manifest Himself, He did so by kind of showing his attributes in a visible light. How do you see God? Well, man can't see God. 
so he chose to do it through light. Matter of fact, God is light. Can you explain light? That's an incredible study. As simple as it is, you just turn on a switch, boom, light comes on. <laughs> the, the light of the sun. But God is the light. Now, he did this to Moses. Then in the very glory of God, Moses' face just reflected this light, this glory of the Lord. It, it reflected off his face and it went off into the people. And I want to tell you, it's more than just shining. We're talking about like coming from the sun. It is so bright, people can't look upon it. His face was like a blazing sun. It was like a small sun amongst them. It's just blazing. That's the idea of this, this shining. The people can't look at it. They sort of feel the glow and you know, they hear the voice, but they can't look directly at it. You don't ever look directly at the sun, do you? Don't ever think that you can do that. People are blinded when they do that. This is the immense glory that's coming off of Moses' face. It's just a reflection that like stuck there, but it would fade away until he went in the when he'd go to be with God. He, he put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't wouldn't keep blinding the people. Another reason though is because they would see that it would fade away. And that's what Paul is going to relate to us as he brings on in 2 Corinthians what he just is quoting from. He adds to the aspect because it's going to fade away and he doesn't want them to see a fading of the glory of this. And that's what the law does. It will fade away to the new covenant that will not fade away. That's where he's going with all of this. They couldn't look directly at it, but then it's going to fade away. So when he, you know, he'd go back to speak with God, and then he'd take the veil off again. There comes that brightness shining on him again. And then when he came back out, he'd speak with the veil off. But then he had to put it on. You know, he had been speaking, so he put that veil back on. The passing glory. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory. Now, now we get that first phrase, don't we? We talked about the minister of death, what the Old Testament does. The Old Covenant kills. The law, the law kills. That's what it's designed to do. We see here the passing glory of the Mosaic ministry. Emitting rays of glory from it. This is the Old Covenant. The law itself was magnificent in its display of the glory of God as we saw in the book of Exodus. It's associated with the commandment. And with the covenant of the law is glory. Can't deny that. Let's go again a little bit to that. The law is a killer. What they had was a way of life. But it really led to death if they don't trust in Christ. If they don't have the inward law in their hearts, this is leading to death. The law actually killed them. Romans 7, 9 through 11, Paul recognized what it did to him. In Romans, just back up a little bit, a couple of books. Romans 7, 9 through 11. 
Paul says, this is what happened. This is what the law did to me. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. That's why the law is there. For I would not have known about the Tenth Commandment. He said, that Tenth Commandment is not there. Well, what's the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Do you know what? Paul knew he coveted. It's obvious. We want things. We want things that are not ours. He says, I wouldn't have known that until I, I saw the Tenth Commandment. He broke them all. But it was that one about coveting. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. And for the first time, it meant something different than what he thought. He thought about all those other unrighteous people. And they can't follow the law. They, you know, they're coveters. No, I'm not. And then the law came. And it struck him dead. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind apart from the law. Sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, when it really came to me, sin became alive and I died. He thought he was living. He was a dead man. Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The problem is, is we don't know it. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's to see how dead we are. It shows us. Oh, I'm a sinful person. So when you read the law of God, you look at your own life, you're dead. What does that mean, you're dead? Well, for one thing, you are a you are living but dead. What's that? What's that? When you die a kind of a living death, it's full of shame, full of guilt, full of remorse, inability and frustration. Things are not going the way it should. Can't live up to God's law. I know it's obvious. Look at my life. And that causes a death. And then also, if people don't trust in Christ at that time, when the law has been brought to them, and they have the guilt and the shame, they really don't have repentance. And they go on like that for the rest of their life. They're dead, but they're physically not dead yet. And then it will kill you eternally. Because you violated God's law. Galatians 3.10 says, You are cursed. Galatians 3.13 says, You are cursed. The curse was put on Christ. If you trust in Christ, the curse has now been taken away. The sins have been cast away. Put your trust in Christ. The law is a murderer. It's a mass murder. It kills everybody. Everybody that has ever lived is killed. It's the greatest mass murderer of all time. It renders all men doomed. Men are damned and condemned because the law is what kills them. And God, finally, at their physical life, demands holiness and they don't have it. It's not in Christ. They're trusting in something else. 
the new covenant gives life. But it's a ministry of death and letters engraved on stones. We'll talk about that. Came with glory. Exodus chapter 19. This is an awesome thing. Back to Exodus. Exodus 19. I'm not going to read all the verses here of this. This is incredible. Just before He gives the law to the people, Exodus 19 at verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today. Set them apart. Get them clean. It's representing they were dirty. They were sinful. And He says, verse 12, You shall set bounds for the people all around. Don't even let them get up close to Mount Sinai. Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountains will surely be put to death physically. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man he shall not. Even if somebody does that, you make sure you don't even touch them. They're consecrated. Verse 16, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Everybody there was trembling. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was in all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked. A magnitude of, who knows, a magnitude of five, six, seven, ten, twenty. It's violently getting ready. It's quaking violently. The sound of the trumpet, it grew louder and louder and louder. I'm sure the people are going like this, covering their faces, covering their ears. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. This is how holy God is. This is glory. The sounds, the sights. It's touching the senses. You want to feel something? When you, you think of this right here. You want to feel God? You think of how holy He is. You may want to back off of that a little bit. <laughs> Because you want to know the holiness of God. People, if they gazed there, they had to be so careful. Now, Exodus 20, verse 18. Giving of the Ten Commandments. All the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and sound of the trumpet, mountain smoking. The people saw it. They trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Of course, Moses gives the answer. There you can read it. But this is representing the holiness of God. People don't like that Old Testament holy God. So therefore they grab the New Testament holy God and they find out He's the same God and the new as the old. And they don't want Him either. That should make people tremble when they see the holiness of God. They should be bowing and repenting, confessing their sins and see how they affronted a holy God. That's representing His holiness. That's what the law does. It shows we cannot catch up with it. And in Exodus 33, verse 18, 
And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory later on. Show me your glory. God said, I'll, I'll pass by and show my goodness and my compassion. You can't see my face. No man can see that. But I'm going to show you my glory. The backside of it. I'm going to show you a little bit of gracious, compassion, goodness. A little bit of the attributes of God. Who He is there. Well, He came with glory. Do you see what that verse means? The law came with glory. It was reflective of God. It reflected upon Moses' shining face. The Old Covenant came in glory, but as a killer. The Old Covenant with its civil and moral and ceremonial laws could only command, can never save, it could only illustrate, could only symbolize, can't give life. No life in that law. It just shows the disease. Shows the corruption. It shows there is no hope. It causes one to flee to God for deliverance. Pilgrim's Progress. What did the man do? He fled out and fled to Christ on the cross. Now, our second Corinthians. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Now, here's the comparison. You have a fading glory of Moses' face. You know there was the glory of Jesus Christ when He was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John were there and they saw a glimpse of the glory of God. They actually experienced it. What a great thing. We don't get to see that, do we, right now? But that was a shining in Christ. He is where that light comes from. The surpassing glory of the New Covenant... The ministry of the Spirit, it's more glorious. Ministry of the Spirit means the new covenant here. And it means one is delivered from judgment, from death, from hell, from condemnation that is set forth by the law. Then we get to verse 9. How will the ministry fail to be in more glory? For the ministry of condemnation has glory. What's the ministry of condemnation? That's the law. It condemns, doesn't it? Matter of fact, in verse 7, it's the ministry of death. It's the ministry of condemnation. And we're told to give that to sinners. And then we're told to give them the ministry. You minister the new covenant now to them once you've opened up the wounds. And they can see it. They feel it. We're going from the lesser to the greater. From the less to the greater is what's happening here. Fading glory and no covenant. It started at Sinai. The glory went there. It fades and is really replaced. The ending is at Calvary. It still serves its purpose. It served its purpose then. It still does now. That's how God spoke to the nation of Israel though. So much through those laws. The more glorious the ministry of righteousness, of course, that just is on the opposite side of what we started in verse seven, or uh, in, in verse nine. The minute, uh, uh, verse eight. No, it's a nine for the ministry of condemnation. What's the opposite of being condemned? Being declared righteous. 
righteousness. Imputed righteousness. And that came forth by the Reformation. The Reformation of the church did not have the ministry of righteousness. It was not doing it through the Roman church for a thousand years. It was in the dark ages. And for the most part, the clarity of the new covenant was dismissed. The surpassing glory of the covenant ministry. It's a ministry of righteousness. It's a ministry of you've been declared righteous. Martin Luther was the one who is credited for bringing that up to the forefront. The Reformation then continued with that. Luther said this, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. The gift of God. Faith. And this is the meaning. He wrote this, The righteousness of God is revealed by the Gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness. Passive. Not active. Passive. With which the merciful God justifies us by faith. That's the active. So the righteousness of God is not something that I do to please God, but the righteousness of God is something given to me as I come to Him in faith. Just believing Him. Luther also said in another place, he used to think of God as an angry God. God is getting ready. As soon as you sin, boom, He's going to land it on you. That's the way Luther lived all of his life until he came to this saving condition. He was in, he was in horrible torment. That's a good word for it. Constantly. And he just he hated God. But there he was as a priest. He says, it was an angry God sitting on a rainbow holding and hurling thunderbolts at sinners on the earth. He actually was struck by lightning. Luther was. Literally. When I came to understand the righteousness of God and the strength of God and the power of God as gifts from God as He gives on the principle of faith, on the principle of grace, through faith, then he said, here I, here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. Relief. The backpack of sin has just been dropped. The weight has been taken off. He saw the righteousness in Christ. And we have to look at Romans. Romans, one of the biggest main... Powerful tools that Luther and the Reformers used to show righteousness. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's saying just what we said and we looked that up in the Old Testament. It's there. The righteousness of God is in the Old Testament. And he'll go on to prove in Romans 4 that Abraham was declared righteous because of the faith. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction. But he says for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 
and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's salvation. There's what it's all about. That is glorious, isn't it? Number three, real quickly, and I, I, I will stop here. The law had glory, but you know what? It really, compared to the new covenant, the, the glory just fades. And in fact, it really has no glory, as Paul says here in Second Corinthians. Yeah, it had its glory, but check this out, he says. For indeed, verse 10, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. New covenant. For if that which fades away was with glory, old covenant, much more that which remains, that doesn't fade away, that's that's the idea that remains, much more is the new covenant that is in glory. John Calvin said this, Just as the moon and the stars, though they're themselves bright and spin light over all the earth, when the stars are bright, all the glory they have, yet vanish before the greater brightness of the sun. When the sun comes up, what happens to the moon and the stars? You don't see them, they fade. So the law, however glorious in itself, has no glory in the face of the gospel's grandeur. Thank you, John. You just made that really clear. But if we just had a little cloud over us, just a little cloud by day and fire by night, just just over you know Grace Community Church, just for a few days, it would be really nice, Lord. <laughs> you know your glory, Lord. I, it would really be nice. That was in the old covenant. We have something better. We have the covenant that's written in our hearts. We don't need that cloud, that fire, because the fire is right here. There's no veil anymore. It's eternal, that which remains. The other one faded away. It was reflection. This is true. Transitory versus permanent. Which one do you want? Eternal. That means no other covenant needs to follow. There's no other covenant to be made. This is the eternal covenant. In Hebrews, you have eternal redemption. You have eternal spirit. You have eternal inheritance. You have eternal covenant. The eternal covenant. A greater glory. The glory. Without the new covenant, the old covenant would just catapulted everybody into and the whole human race right on into hell. And, well, we deserve that. Very justifiable, because God is just and righteous. The new covenant is much better. It's superior. It gives life. It gives righteousness and is eternal.